is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Episode 7, Part 3 of Francis Milton Trollope's Life. This is our final biographical episode, and we'll be back in April with our normal fiction episode. Thank you for bearing with us through all of the delays this time around. I am deep amid dissertation writing and revising and took on a little bit more this month than I could handle, so my apologies for that. In part one, we covered Francis Milton Trollope's life from childhood up to the precipice of a huge change, her voyage to the U.S. In part two, we picked up with her time in the U.S., particularly at Francis Wright's Neshoba Commune, and then in Cincinnati and her tour up and down the East Coast, and uh, the beginning of her writing career. And this final part will delve more into her writing career and cover end of her life and legacy. Uh, Before we pick up where we left off last time, I should say that the content warning at the beginning of last episode was meant for the beginning of this episode. So just for your information, there will be brief mention of racial and sexual violence in this episode. So just be mindful of little ears if you have children listening with you. Let's set the scene. It's spring of 1830 and Fanny is frantically working on her first manuscript, which will eventually become Domestic Manners. During this time, Fanny falls ill, and even though she eventually recovers, she notes in letters to Tom and Antony that her eyesight is significantly weakened. But that doesn't stop her. You go ahead. Yeah, so... She starts to write the first of her many books. And as her little bit of revenge, it's Domestic Manners of the Americans. So it's about her experience in America, but it also is about how that's influenced her opinions of the country and of slavery, which will inform some of her work, some of which I discuss quite frequently. Yes, and we'll hear more about those in just a second. So Thomas decides not to send her any more money to help her out at all. Like, he just writes and is like, you're cut off. Um, So once again, facing immense financial obstacles, Fanny has to figure out things for herself. And this seems to be because at home, Thomas has gotten himself very, very deeply into debt and again, neglected to tell Fanny about it at all. Why ever tell your wife about your financial affairs? It sounds like their marriage started off so well. Like, if you read Frances Eleanor Trollope's uh, biography, 
it sounds like, you know, during their courtship and the months leading up to their marriage and even the first years of marriage, they would write each other these very sweet letters, but that relationship just deteriorates rapidly. It's kind of, you wonder what, what it would have been but for the calomel. Yeah. So between Fanny's efforts and Evo's painting, they scraped together enough to return to England. And they set off back home in July of 1831 and arrive in August. So it seems like this trip was a little bit faster, maybe. And the whole trip, which reads like a nightmarish lifetime. So the tr- from their initial departure from England till their return had lasted 3.5 years. And then things start to happen very quickly for Fanny's career. So in 1832, she publishes Domestic Manners, um, sells it to Bentley and Son, which is a very prominent publisher. It sounds like she was initially considering selling it to someone else, but Bentley and Son were more respectful in their dealings with her and gave her a better offer. And of course, it has illustrations by our friend Ervo. It's a bestseller um, by the standards of, of that period. And the royalties enable the Trollops to settle back in very comfortably at their farm at Harrow for some time. It's so really controversial, so everyone starts talking about her. A lot of Americans aren't very pleased with what they read. I mean, she's not at all complimentary. Mm-hmm. I would suggest if you can find any of the illustrations that Ivia did for any of her books, just take a look. They're so brilliant. The heads are so bulbous. They're hilarious. <laughs> Well, we'll see if we can find a couple of really great examples to include in the show notes, too. But it was a really good um, team that they had. Yeah. So then, uh, shortly on the heels of that success, Fanny tries her hand at writing a novel for the first time, and The Refugee in America is also published in 1832. So maybe she was writing them at the same time. And it sounds like, um, you know... Something between fiction and creative nonfiction. Yeah, I was going to say there's the fictional and the non-fictional sides of the uh, like same coin. Yeah, yeah. Um, then her second novel, The Abbess, comes out in 1833. I have not read any synopses of it or read it. In fact, it kind of sounds gothic to me. I haven't read anything around it, to be honest, so I'll have to admit to that um and then she is based on her success with travel writing thus far decides to do even more travel writing so um belgium and western germany comes out in 1834 so she does some traveling for that and then it comes out which seems like a really great gig you know just like travel so that you can write a book and 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 benefit from your travel i would do that if i could oh yeah i think it's it's something that her son and her daughter-in-law inherit from her as well. Their fair share of trouble writing as well. It's just really interesting because there's a tendency in English studies, I think, to think of um, late 17th and 18th century travel writing, but the Victorians were still very active in this tradition as well. Yeah, like they invent the Grand Tour and part of that is through writing about it. But of course, things start to get bad again. Uh, Thomas's health is deteriorating, for one, but all of these financial secrets he's been keeping come home to roost. So the landlord forecloses on their mortgage. 
Um, there's a warrant for Thomas's arrest. Fanny and Thomas flee to Belgium to avoid Thomas getting thrown in debtor's prison. And the children who still live at home, i.e. Emily and Cecilia, were sent to stay with relatives while uh, Mama and Papa are busy being refugees, basically. Then Henry, poor Henry, who has never really found his place in life, his calling, dies of tuberculosis in December of 1834. So some bleak times going on. Um, and this is while Fanny is traveling and writing still. She has another go at travel writing. She travels to Paris to research and kind of experience life for her next book, which is Paris and the Parisians. And in October 1835, Thomas does everyone a favour and dies. It's a horrible way to put it, but it feels like it would be a relief. Yeah. Yeah, I can just imagine the family like being sad, but also having just like this weight lifted. Yeah, like he can't get us into any more trouble. Then Emily dies of tuberculosis in February of 1836. So kind of back-to-back -back personal tragedies. But throughout them all, Fanny keeps working. She sets off to Austria and Italy on her next book project, accompanied by Tom and Cecilia. So I guess um, Antony is still in school. I'm not sure where Antony is. At the post office. We forget about him. Kind of lose track of him in the biographies. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> But they never get past Vienna, because Cecilia's health starts to decline. Much like Collins and Braddon, uh, Fanny is a workaholic, and it seems like she turns to her work even more in her grief. So between the death of her son and daughter, she'd completed three more books, one of which was the anti-slavery novel that Eleanor has promoted to us several times. So I'm going to turn things over to Eleanor to tell us about this phenomenal book yeah thank you so this book is called the life and adventures of jonathan jefferson whitlaw or adventures on the mississippi and as courtney says it's released between those two deaths so it's released in 1836 and is the first anti-slavery novel i think possibly i mentioned some of this in the promo for this season but researchers and critics who look into anti-slavery novels, they often cite Richard Hildreth's The Slaves or Memoirs of Archie Moore as being the first, but it's actually published six months after Jonathan Jefferson Whitlaw. Hmm. I'm very suspicious of that move because, for one thing, Archie Moore and Jonathan Jefferson Whitlaw are both white, but Jonathan Jefferson Whitlaw is definitely an anti-hero. I don't really get the impression that Archie Moore is. <laughs> I haven't read it though, so if you have and you're you know, passionate about it, then please defend it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a really radical book and some of the features aren't always present in modern works. Francis had witnessed the desperate escape of slaves crossing into Ohio from neighbouring Kentucky, which was a slave state, and she lends this first-hand experience to the novel. Jonathan Jefferson Whitlaw, who I've mentioned, he is a young white man from a prosperous family, and his family have a shop selling to travellers on the Mississippi. At some point, he becomes the personal confidential clerk of one of those travellers. And in that capacity, he is employed to spy on slaves. Uh, what a great job. 
yeah, they're going to make sure they're not stealing or plotting to kill the family, which would be completely just, I don't want to say justified. Mm. Murder is never right, but also if you're a slave, kill your oppressors, basically. I think it is justified, like when they're murdering your children. Yeah, right. The Whitlaws in the book consider owning slaves a status symbol, and they look down on other characters who don't own slaves. The thing that really struck me is how the book's not just anti-slavery, but it's also a critique of misogyny. Mm. Jonathan is absolutely shocked and appalled when a young woman that he's taken a fancy to refuses his proposal. And then he decides he's going to blow off steam and calm down after the insult by trying to force himself on a young slave woman called Phoebe. Oh. Yeah, quite. And Francis is actually really good about this because it's not a thing where the reader, it's not a like titillating scene she cuts away from that scene so you know it's about to happen but it's not a kind of tarantino style exposition of violence that's good that's refreshing (laughs) yeah it's amazing that something written in 1836 can be refreshing but it is or 1835 even is probably when it was written and luckily he's prevented from forcing himself on phoebe by a character called Juno, who is kind of an elderly slave and seen as a matriarch for all the slaves. Jonathan believes that she has supernatural powers for whatever reason. Unfortunately, though, Phoebe is not the only slave he rapes, and he does father children with several of other women. But, of course, obviously he can't face the consequences for his actions, and he decides it's better to separate those children from their mothers and sell his own children to other people. Oh. So it's not really made explicit whether he has deliberately named Jonathan Jefferson Whitlaw after Thomas Jefferson, who did the same thing. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, was that widely known at that time? I don't know. I kind of... It was something that I was a bit like, hmm, what is... I was wondering what she was doing, because obviously he's one of the early presidents, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also she might have just been trying to give him a very American name. Yeah, like was she trying to curry favour and reference one of the big celebs? Or was she making it very American as an added critique? Or was she referencing this? It'd be interesting to find out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the horrible treatment of women does not end there. Because he later proposes to another woman only for it to be revealed that she's actually Juno's great-granddaughter. So when he finds it out, because he is a super generous guy, he's like, it's okay, um, I've heard that you're mixed race, and I've always been, so instead of marrying you, I'll, you can just be my mistress. Because, of course, I can't marry you. He's a real stand-up guy. He really is, and then the really horrible bit is that this lucky lady, Selena, she has so much internalised racism that she can't bear the the knowledge that she's mixed race and she kills herself. Hmm. It's it's another thing where handled differently it could be a very questionable move, but I think the way it's handled makes it more a it's a critique of her, her internalized racism rather than being like, oh, what a shock, how terrible for her. It's more how terrible for her that she can't get past this. Interesting. And Juno's story is one of the books. Juno is the great-grandmother and the person who saves Phoebe. It's kind of one of the aspects that I think makes it really revolutionary because she's not only 
depicted sympathetically as a strong woman who knows how to take the lead, she's also shares the narrative. So we get her viewpoint to cancel out his horrible one. Interesting. That sounds really... um, I don't know what I was going to say. It sounds really like a sophisticated and kind of unrelenting analysis of the realities that she would have definitely encountered during her travels in the US. Yeah, I think you can definitely, once you know that, you see that experience sneaking in and you can see her frustration. Uh, that It's the same as us, where we're like, how can you think it's okay to own people? Yeah. What I would say is there are, there are aspects that you'd critique if this was a modern book, but it's also a really sensitive exploration of the ways that gender and race intersect from... It's over 150 years before Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality, but it really does feel like it's an intersectional approach. Hmm. It's black women that come to the forefront, which is one of the things I really appreciate about it. That's really remarkable considering Fanny's class prejudices, that she can write from different subject positions. Yeah, it's. I find this with both the Francis Trollops, that they... They will express opinions in their letters and non-fiction writing that seems really counter to the author of then, like creative writing. Mm. Like they'll express really conservative opinions, and then write books that seem really egalitarian and kind of proto-feminist. It's bizarre. Mm, yeah, because this is it does depict the specific and sexual violence perpetrated by white men upon black women, which is still, kind of still seen as somewhat revolutionary. Mm -hmm. The racist man isn't some kind of super redneck hillbilly. It's a middle-class, clean-cut guy who actually aspires to become a senator and in the long run run for president, which is why I was wondering about Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, that, that makes it even more interesting. But the impact. There's there's pretty good evidence to suggest that the novel inspired Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it's also been argued that the novel influenced legislation. So there was an act passed in 1833, which is supposed to abolish slavery, but really only meant that slaves existed as indentured servants, and the length of that servitude was dictated by, by the masters. So basically, same shit, different name. And then in 1838, which is two years after the novel, we get an act of legislation that actually ends slavery, mm -hmm. rather than just renaming it. That's interesting, to, to kind of trace the, the influences there. Yeah, so I wouldn't go as far as saying that it was this novel that made that second legislation successful, but it's interesting to track the progress of the kind of ideas changing. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's fair to say that cultural productions like novels and art help introduce and popularize concepts in the public consciousness, which then does turn into um, paradigm shifts and, and legal changes. And I think that's why um, I'm seeing a lot of writers like currently in in the 2017-18 political climate really struggle with like why their work matters. It seems really frivolous to be creating worlds, but that art actually does have power to affect change in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I, especially in this 
climate, you just have to look at how people respond to The Handmaid's Tale Mm -hmm. to see that it does have a really profound effect. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a... That's a novel that's really worth reading, and it's a good way to argue that she is radical in ways that I don't think she realizes. Yeah, so maybe like in terms of class, she's not that radical, but in other areas of her life, um, has much more progressive ideas. Yeah. And I think it's this thing about ideas coming through in the fiction that aren't there in the nonfiction. It almost seems kind of subconscious in a way yeah so heading back to england from vienna from this failed trip um fanny has to readjust her plans a little bit she ends up moving to london in 1838 um then cecilia gets married shortly thereafter and fanny has a house built near penrith to be near cecilia and her new husband I'll let you take this next bit because you've talked about this quite a lot. I was literally distracting myself by looking up Cecilia's novel. (laughs) 1846. That's all I wanted to know. Yeah, so in 1842, Fanny travels to Italy with Tom and they set up a house in Florence called the Valino Trollope, which ends up being a real centre for culture and a literary salon. In 1847, Cecilia joins them in the hopes of improving her health. She has tuberculosis. It's also worth noting that the year before 1846, Cecilia herself had published a novel just to join the ranks of adult Trollope family members who have published a novel, because otherwise she'd be the only one other than her father who hadn't. (laughs) And then unfortunately, in 1849, she's dying, so Cecilia is dying. So a 70-year-old Fanny goes back to England to nurse her daughter through her remaining months of life. And Cecilia unfortunately dies in 1849, so Francis returns to Florence. And in the interim, Tom, her eldest child, has gone and got married to Theodosia Garrow. I would like to talk about Theodosia as well at some point, because she is a really cool, cool is the wrong word, a really interesting character. She is a poet. She's of Indian and Jewish descent. She's a poet and was friends with Elizabeth Browning as a child, as they were both kind of sickly together. And now they're both living in Florence and maintaining a kind of cultural society there. And she also starts up something called the Tuscan Athenaeum. So basically, Theodosia is a really interesting character. (laughs) Sidebar, that will be a future episode (laughs) yes coming soon to a podcast near you um so now we come to the closing chapter of fanny trollope's long life in 1856 her last book fashionable life or paris and london gets published and at this point she's 77 years old and she decides she's accomplished enough in her life and she's retiring yeah 34 books is enough for sure yeah and i read that it's 34 books but it's the it's the for novels at least it's common then that a book would be published in in three volumes so it's 
basically as long as three modern novels. So she wrote 34 books, but in a total of 115 volumes. I'd imagine it's less the case with her as with Frances Eleanor Trollope. But while I'm looking, I'm finding things by both of them that haven't really been credited previously. So it may be more. Yeah, this is a huge problem that people are still trying to address, especially like early 19th century and throughout the 18th century, women writers' work is frequently unattributed or misattributed. Um, and sometimes you just have to open a bunch of old books and it'll say, by the author of Domestic Manners and not actually name their name, and that's the only way you know that it was written by this person and not someone else. Yeah, absolutely, and especially if it was published in a periodical. Mm -hmm. So many of them that are unsigned, especially in the start of the century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you are interested in getting into uh, this kind of work, there's still a lot of recovery work to be done. Yeah, it's basically my thesis is recovery work. It's rewarding. Mm -hmm. You feel like, it feels like Christmas sometimes when you discover something new. Yeah, the amount of times I've kind of leapt out of my chair and gone, here's another one! So we've got some something sad to cover now. I feel like I'm in the wrong frame of mind. Hmm. After her retirement, Frances's health declined and she struggled with senility. She died in Florence on the 6th of October, 1863, aged 84. Tom erected a tombstone in Florence's English cemetery for both Francis Milton Trollope and his first wife, Theodore Shigaro. And he wrote the inscriptions for both, which is, I get the impression it's kind of unusual for the uh, relative to write the inscription. It's in Latin, so I'm not going to read it out here, but I did visit last year, so I'll put my picture in the show notes. Yes, do you know when Theodosia died? It was quite close to Francis Milton. It was 1860, I want to say five off the top of my head. Wow. It was either 1864 or 1865, because I believe he married Frances Eleanor in late 1865 or 6. Hmm. Yeah, 1865. April 1865. Interesting. And I think he marries Frances Eleanor in November 1865. Okay. So I'm struck in descriptions of her later life by a parallel between her and Mary Elizabeth Braddon. In episode 4, part 2, Eleanor and I talked about the way Braddon's favorite son, Will, grappled with his mother's fame and his efforts to become a novelist in her shadow. Unlike Will, Antony Trollope, and to a lesser extent Tom, uh, basically threw his mother's reputation under the bus in his 1883 autobiography, so it was a strategic career move. To succeed, he felt that he needed to diminish his mother's fame and make himself out to be the successful, kind of like a lone successful genius in the family. And he succeeded very well. Damn him. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so angry about it. Uh, um, to be fair, Will might have done the same thing if he had been more successful, but he only had kind of mild success compared to his mother's, so maybe he never had quite the same opportunity that Antony had and saw and took. But the fact remains that the indomitable Miss Trollope was largely forgotten because her sons betrayed her and wanted to be more famous and successful than her. So that's a bummer note to end on. It's a super bummer. Maybe we can 
close with some words about her life written by Frances Eleanor Trollope, her daughter-in-law. So, she says, I have thought that her personality and her literary career merited being described more fully. I know not if there be another example in literature of another author so voluminous and successful who has reached 50 years of age before the publication of his first work. But surprise at the energy and industry which enabled her to accomplish so much, beginning at a period of life when most people are inclined to consider their work in the world drawing to a close, is increased a hundredfold when one is informed of the circumstances under which some of her best books were written. Forty years ago, any list of English women of letters would have been held to be incomplete without the name of Francis Trollope. Fashions change, reputations fade, books are forgotten. Nevertheless, an adequate acquaintance with the lighter literature of the century must still include the names of her works, or at least the principal ones. Yeah, so Frances Eleanor Trollope, having never met her mother-in-law, notes very diplomatically that her husband and his brother have been remiss in not remembering her adequately, and sets about to repair that oversight. I'm not actually convinced that they never met. I know that Teresa Ransom says they didn't, but I think there's there's a possibility they did. There isn't evidence either way. Okay. But there's circumstantial evidence that they might have. But not when she was actually part of the family, or...? Yeah, basically Dickens writes her a letter of introduction, writes Frances Eleanor Trollope a letter of introduction to Frances Milton. Mm. It's not clear whether she ever uses it, but... There's no um, definitive evidence either way. Okay. But still, even if she had met Fanny, she was definitely not, like, a bosom friend. She's just kind of like a passing acquaintance who nevertheless recognizes how unjust her sons have been and tries to fix that. Absolutely. I wonder if there's a kind of extra sense of obligation when it's someone who has literally the same name as you yeah yeah but yes she was definitely on the footing of an acquaintance and not as a daughter-in-law when she met her in life so thanks to Frances Eleanor I think we probably she's probably a huge reason why we still know about Frances Milton today well thanks for listening yes thanks for listening everyone
friends, I'll give you some real good advice. Yes, matrimony may be very nice. So don't say marriage is simply sublime. But I'll take single life most any time. Once I was positively single it. Now I am negatively double-knit. Within my flat, I was a queen a short time back. Until I grew a king that beat the whole blame back. Pronounce it with a sigh. What causes all the misery in this land? If you want to find out, ask any married man. And he'll say M-A-T-R-I-M-O-N-Y. Victorian Scribblers is written by myself, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. Music for this podcast courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. And today's closing music is May Irwin's 1907 M-A-T-R-I-M-O-N-Y. M-A-T-R-I-M-O-N-Y.